pray with me? You can just bow your head and close your eyes. And right there in your seat, I want to walk us through a moment of actually giving glory to God, giving him praise and thanksgiving for all the ways he may have shown us kindness. Sometimes we can run through our weeks and, and miss that. So we just hit pause with us for a moment. I want you to think through some of the kindness that God has shown you in the last weeks and months. Would you just take a moment right there in your seat to quietly thank him and praise him for being so kind. Take a moment to uh, thank him even for letting you get this close to Christmas, be able to spend time with family. Would you, would you thank him for, for giving us times like this where we can be together with family? Listen, even in the midst of COVID, we're, we're all here. And uh, for many of us, it hasn't been as bad as it could have been. Would you take a moment to praise him for his protection? and we know that some here are heavy. Some haven't been protected from COVID. Would you take a moment if you're feeling heavy, just cast your burden on him, whatever you're struggling with today. For some of you, uh, you don't feel heavy, but you know there's those who have been suffering around. Would you pray for those in our city and in our neighborhoods and our communities that are suffering right now? whether that's from COVID or something else, would you just pray for them? Heavenly Father, God, we, we, we come to worship you. And God, there's sometimes we come happy and excited and sometimes we come heavy and sad and maybe repentant. And so God, I pray that right now as we, as we worship you, I pray that our hearts would be stirred. God, I want every man, woman, and child that's in this room, every person who's watching online, God, I want all of us to encounter you and only you through your words. I'm, I'm praying you would help us all to listen and to see. God, I pray you would help me to teach in that way. And I pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. If you're home watching online, I would assume you're already seated. I don't know. I guess that would be kind of weird if you were watching standing up, but I'll just trust you on that one. I, I want to know all of you know that are here. Listen, I'm, I'm glad that every single one of you are here today. Uh, uh, I know that it's raining, maybe snowing. I don't know if anyone saw possible snow on Friday. Anybody? Okay, it did that on my app, but my app always lies to me and then it shifted on me. Just keep looking at your iPhone apps. I'm telling you, we could have a white Christmas in Tallahassee, Florida or not, or a rainy Christmas. It's just as good, okay? Uh, but I'm glad that all of you made it today. If you're watching online, I'm, I'm really glad that you've decided to join us today. Um, and, and I'm praying that this time right now will actually be good for every single one of us, that, that we'll enjoy what we see about God and his word today. And so we're going to jump right into Matthew chapter two. We've been doing a Christmas series. And as you do that, I know that Christmas is supposed to be a very happy and joyful time. But, but let me ask, have you ever had a bad Christmas? You're, oh, I'm sorry. That was a question. Um, have you ever had a bad Christmas? All right. There's like, for the eight of us who've had bad Christmases, uh, there's something that always feels off about having a bad Christmas, Right. Like there's something that when, when you're having a Christmas and there's pain and suffering, something feels disjointed. 
it, it feels like it, it shouldn't fit. I mean, after all, Christmas is the time we're supposed to have good, good tidings of great joy, right? And then all of a sudden, sometimes life feels like it kind of smacks you in the face. I remember one year, uh, I was a youth pastor and one of my favorite middle school boys, his name was Matthew. Uh, Matthew was 13 at the time and he died right around Christmas time. It was just a few days away from Christmas from leukemia. Uh, he'd had it as a kid, it went away, came back with a vengeance and really walloped him. And as we were gathering to do that funeral, it was, there's Christmas lights all over the sanctuary and we're packed in there to do the funeral of a 13 year old boy. And it didn't feel like it fit, right? Like, man, I may have just knocked, sucked the wind right out. You're like, Christmas is the worst, right? But, but you have that moment and you've got the Christmas trees and the lights and the candles and the gifts. And we didn't really feel like singing a lot in that moment. Maybe for some of you, you've had Christmases, maybe it wasn't that bad, but you had lost a loved one later in the year. And as you come up to Christmas, what you experience is that empty chair, that empty spot at the table, that person's not there. And all of a sudden Christmas feels heavy and difficult. We, we kind of just want all suffering to stop at Christmas, but it, it doesn't, right? We, we know that bad things are still happening. People are still getting sick. There's still wars and brutality and oppression. There's still people losing jobs and suffering. And, and in the middle of Christmas, something feels off. It, it shouldn't be. We almost feel like we should at least get a two to three week pause on all bad things at Christmas time. Anyone else saying, listen, let's, let's go ahead and make that law. Nothing bad is ever allowed to happen at the two to three weeks around Christmas. But, but even if we said it's what we want to happen, it, it's not. It's we can't stop it. There's still suffering around us. And, and this, this message of Christmas about good news for all people, and I would add at all times, how does Christmas line up with that type of tragedy, with, with suffering? I, I think it does. And I think Matthew chapter two gives us a glimpse of that. So with that brutal question, would you jump into Matthew chapter two with me? And, and we all know this story. Matthew chapter two, verse one says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, his, we saw his star when it rose. And we have come to worship him. So, so here's what happens. We've got these guys that show up nowhere else in the Bible probably. They're, they're called the wise men. From my perspective, I don't know that I consider them necessarily wise. They kind of seem a little stupid. Maybe they're book smart and street dumb. I don't know exactly how that works, but I'll tell you why I think that in a little while. So, so these wise men show up. We don't know a lot about them. Some people make up names for them, all sorts of stuff. We don't even know that there's three of them. That's only because of how many gifts. The Bible tells us nothing about how many, what they were doing. We just know there was wise men from the East. Uh, these men possibly are probably related to the type of wise men that Daniel was. If you know the Bible, the story of Daniel, Daniel was probably this type of guy, a wise man or a magi. They're not kings, but they normally work for kings. And these guys, uh, they're supposed to be able to interpret dreams. They're probably involved in some things like astrology and astronomy and maybe even some sorcery. Like these are not like your really good Christian type of people. They're messing with stuff they ought not to mess with. 
Um, but, but they've got all these things. And some people believe, I don't know if this is true or not, that, that these guys probably were influenced by Daniel, who when Daniel became a wise man, the big dog wise man in, in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar, some people believe that he might have injected them with some of the truths like, no, we believe that there's a coming Messiah one day. He will come and he will be king of Israel and we should be looking for him. And so Daniel may have injected some of that with his leadership among the wise men. So these wise men, we don't know how, but they see some star and however that's working, this is not an excuse to mess with astrology. Don't go down that path, but they see some star and they say, listen, we, we think that that means that there's some king that God has promised that's showing up. I don't know anything about that. I just know they show up in Jerusalem and they're showing up expecting this. The, the king that's been promised should have been born. So when you show up looking for this great promised king and you show up in Jerusalem, you expect everyone to know who that is. And very quickly, they get to Jerusalem and nobody has a clue about where this king is. So they send him to Herod. Now, this is when they get not so wise to me. This is the moment, and you think about this. If you show up looking for the new king and there's another king on the throne that doesn't have a baby, what should you be thinking is happening? Right? Like, you, you don't really want to go there. You don't show up to a king and say, listen, we're here to find the new king. Because the current king doesn't like the presence of a new king because he's the current king. And so that's when I say these guys are kind of not so wise men. They're kind of knucklehead men is what I'll call, call them. But they show up looking for this newborn king. And, and so they send him to Herod. Verse, verse three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Oh, you think? <laughs> He's like, oh, what, what does this mean? Like they're looking for this king. He's bothered. He's troubled. This is a threat to his authority, to his rule, maybe even to his life. Herod does not like this possibility. And it also says this, and all Jerusalem with him. All of Jerusalem is nervous. Let me, let me tell you why they're nervous. Herod was a psychopath. He's like, Israel knows this. Jerusalem knows that Herod is a psychopathic, paranoid king. He kills people all the time for stuff like this. His brother-in-law was the high priest. He had him drowned and killed. He had his wife killed. He had three of his sons killed, all because they were plotting on him. Well, that's what he thought. We don't know if they were actually plotting, but he believed they were, so they were dead. So when you show up to this guy's house and say, where's the new king? Yeah, people get a little nervous because when a paranoid guy meets something that actually should make him paranoid, he's going to act crazy. Like people are going to die. It's going to be bad. It's going to be messy. It's going to be awful. And so these wise men show up to Herod and they don't see a baby and they keep talking with him. And here's what Herod does. Now, now here's what's shocking. I need you to think about this. Here's Herod. He's the king of Israel. Rome has set him up as king. He's paranoid. He's nervous about this. His brother-in-law is the high priest of Israel. He's the big dog of religious leaders of Israel. And these guys show up and say, we saw the promised king in the stars. He's born. Like, Either Herod doesn't believe it or he doesn't. But if he believes it, here's what that means. God is at work and he's doing something big right now. So, so how should he respond? We, it looks good at first. Look at what he does. Verse four, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people. Give me all the people that know the prophecies and know the Bible. Give me all the people who know what God's like. Bring them in the room with me and let me ask them, tell me about the coming Messiah. 
Like, that's exactly, like, tell me about this guy. When he finds out, he finds out where he's supposed to be born. Verse five, they told him he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for so was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So, so here's the info that Herod's got. There's a king possibly that's been born. It's the coming king who's been promised by prophecies of God hundreds of years ago. Now, now listen, if that's you, like think about it. You've got power, you've got influence, but this thing that's been promised from long ago, these dudes show up and say, we saw it lined up and you find out, listen, he's born just a town away. What do you do? How should you respond? I would hope that we respond by saying, listen, this is awesome. Let's go find this king. Let's make him king. Let's protect him. Let's set him up. Let me take my rule and hand off because he's the real and rightful ruler from God. But that's not what Herod does. Herod has a plan. So he grabs the wise men, the knucklehead men, sorry, verse seven. Then, then Herod summoned the semi-wise men secretly and he is. He ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He said, listen, listen, I think I know where he's at. How long ago did this happen? And they tell him about two years ago. And he sent them to Bethlehem. And, and here's his plan saying, go and search diligently for the child. For when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Listen, they, you shouldn't buy this, people. Like the wise men should not be getting sucked into this, but they get sucked into it and say, listen, I want you to go find the kid. And when you find him, let me know because I want to come and worship him with you because this is awesome. We've been looking forward to God sending this savior for us. We've been looking forward to a king that's from God. So that's what they do. Verse nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, this is, I don't understand exactly how it's working, but somehow they go out to go find him. It's nighttime. They see a star and they're like, this is awesome. Like God's helping us on our way. It seems to go right over where Jerusalem is at. I don't think this means it's over the house. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they get to the house and they've obviously showed up in Bethlehem, which is a small little village. Right now, now picture this, picture this small little village. It's not huge. It's, it's outside of Jerusalem a little bit. And all of a sudden this caravan of these guys show up who seem rich and somewhat wise or however it is, they show up in town saying, Hey, where's, where's the baby that was born? Where, where's the baby that was, we're looking for someone special, like a special baby, like in a small little village, that's going to cause quite a ruckus. When, when your village is several hundred people, like you're, you're not, you're, that's a big deal when these dudes roll into town. So they point them to where Mary and Joseph are because apparently there was a lot of hubbub when Jesus was born with shepherds and angels and all sorts of stuff happening. So they send them over to Mary and they show up there with Mary and Joseph, verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They got these three gifts and when they see him, it's huge to me. 
These guys that are involved in sorcery and astrology and kind of jacked up, they're not Israelites. They probably are not really true worshipers of God, but they realize in this moment that that baby is from God and they, they get down, they don't just bend the knee, they worship him. They, they worship him. It's, it's crazy to me. Chief priests, scribes, religious leaders, none of them do that. These pagan men from another country show up. These people who are outsiders show up and they worship Jesus. Listen, it's, it's shocking to me that the good news doesn't always seem like good news to the clean and the religious. But, but to the people who are outside, they actually get it. They have this moment saying, yeah, that, that's good news, man. Jesus comes, this means something to me. And so they worship, they know this is miraculous. They know this is from God. Maybe they hear the story from Mary about her being a virgin when she got pregnant with him. Like they're in awe of this and they believe it and they worship Jesus. That seems like a good thing, right? There should be celebration and pardon. This is going to be the moment like these three wise men show up. He's beginning to be recognized. He should be growing up to be the king of Israel. Everyone should be surrounding Jesus. This is the moment that you think, okay, if I'm Mary and Joseph, it's about to take off. Like they're going to start coming. We're going to start gathering people around us. He's going to get influence. Like this is the moment that all the promises that God made us are starting to happen. This is an exciting thing. It should be great. Look at what verse happened. What happens in verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, this is the wise men, they departed to their own country by another way. Apparently, they just now figured out that Herod is a bad dude. I, I don't like, so they go, they have this dream. They're on the way back to go tell Herod, listen, we found the king. And they have the dream, don't go back to Herod. He's basically going to kill you. So they skedaddle out of town. Meanwhile, look what happens with Joseph. Verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. I mean, this is a crazy little, this is a crazy night of sleep for these people. And he said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Because this is what was prophesied that, that the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I've called my son. So Here's what basically happens. Instead of everything going off, in one night, they go from this great moment that God's gonna do everything we expected and hoped. It's about to be big and huge and gigantic. He's gonna be king. It literally turns, it pivots in one night to all of a sudden now they're packing up in the middle of the night, everything they can load up and they're running for their lives because Herod wants to come and kill this baby. Like the, Joseph is going to Egypt. The wise men are scattering. Like this moment of happiness and joy and celebration, this moment that should have been victory now is fear and loss and agony. They're away from family. They're scared for their lives. And, and you've got to be asking. You, you've got to be asking, God, I, I don't understand. I thought he was the coming Messiah. Why go through all this if we just have to run for our lives and hide down in Egypt? Like, where's your strength? Where's your might? Where's your power? Why are you showing up right now when I need you most? You, you felt that in those moments? We talked about tragedy earlier. That, that agony of the lost love. Like, God, I know you could have showed up. If you just showed up, you could have fixed this. You could have handled that cancer. You could have handled that medical thing. You, you could have handled that job loss. You could, have, you could have handled everything. I need you most right now. 
You feel the marriage crumbling, the kids going wild. You, you feel your life weighing down on top of you. And you're saying, God, I need you now. Where are you? Why this suffering? Why this agony? I, I need you present. I need you present right now. This doesn't seem like your great and glorious and amazing plan. This feels like something else. If you ever had that moment, listen, that's part of the Christmas story. That's exactly what Mary and Joseph are feeling in this moment. They're feeling disappointment and fear and probably some frustration. And they're packing up and hauling tail out of town to Egypt, away from God's people. Back to Egypt where, where Israel was slaves thousands of years ago. This feels backwards. But again, Matthew's reminding us this is all prophesied by God. It was part of his plan. This suffering, this difficulty, this confusion, this, this um, un, unrealized victory, like it, this, all this disappointment is all part of God's plan. He's got it under control. So then here's what happens. And, and this is the part that gets really sickening to me. V verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. Listen, I, I need that to sink in for a moment for you. That Herod, the wise men don't come back, so Herod gets upset. Not just a little upset. He gets raging, furious, angry, mad that he's been tricked by the wise men. And so his plan is, well, they told me it appeared like a year and a half, two years ago. So we're going to go find every boy in all of Bethlehem and all the little neighborhood areas in there. And we're going to kill every single child, every male child that's two years and younger. I don't know if you've seen my two-year-old running around. I need you to have a picture in your brain of what that looks like. I need you to let the savageness and the brutality and the evil of this sink in because that's part of Christmas. He makes his command, kill every single one of them. Every two-year-old boy. Listen, Jesus is safe, but all those families are at home in Bethlehem. They have no idea. They have... They don't know all the drama that's happening with Herod. And I want you to think about how, not just how evil this is, think how stupid this is. The wise men don't come back. You know what that tells you? They've already warned the parents that Herod knows. Herod knows he's not gonna get the baby he's looking for. Right? Like if the wise men escaped, don't you think told the mom and dad and they escaped? This is not that Herod's definitely going to get the kid. Herod knows he's not going to get the kid. But he's going to needlessly make all these families suffer. It's evil. It's stupid. It's wicked. It's deeply tragic. Like it's, it's awful. And here's the other thing. I, I need you to remember this. Herod believes this is true because he went to the prophecies that God said in the Old Testament. You know how Herod found out where this baby was? Because the Bible told him the baby would be born in Bethlehem. Herod knows that this is from God. 
He knows it's not going to work. He knows it's from God. He knows this is wicked and evil, and yet he still does it. Listen, why would God tell us? Why would he let this even happen? I, I, I need you to know something. I don't know all the whys, but I do know this. You know what I learned as I read that verse right there? Nothing stands out more clear to me than the fact that we need a savior. When I see the wickedness and brokenness and rebellion of the world, and even of my own heart, it is clear to me that I need a savior, that, that we need a savior. We need more than just a king to show up. We need someone to come and die on the cross for our sins and give us brand new hearts. And here's this tragedy happening. And it stands out to me, the evil and wickedness of the world, that the only solution was for Jesus to come and die on a cross. That we were not going to accept him unless he gave us new hearts. It's, it's shocking to me. It's, it's stupid that Herod knows this from God. He knows he's not going to get the baby, and he still does this reckless evil. But there's something else here. Because in, the thing I ask is, how does Christmas and suffering merge together? Look at this, verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So, so Matthew goes back to this prophecy in Jeremiah. It's in Jeremiah chapter 31. It says this, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Listen, this prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31 is Jeremiah's prophesying to the nation of Israel. All their people have been taken away and many of their sons have left and they're exiled and many of them have been killed in battle and they're weeping and mourning. And here's what's crazy. In, the, in Jeremiah 31, the whole chapter is happy until you get to that verse, verse 15. And he says, listen, Rachel's weeping because her sons are no more. They've gone and died in battle. I want to read the two following verses in Jeremiah 31 to you because they stand out to me. Here's this suffering. These people are saying, listen, we've lost all this. What is God doing? My sons are no more and you cannot make me feel better about that. In Jeremiah 31, the very next verse says this. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for there is a reward for your work declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. How do they come back when they are no more? I'll give you a hint. It starts with resurrection. Verse 17, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Listen, here's, here's the prophecy that Jeremiah's talking about. God's promising to restore Israel. And these ladies are weeping, saying, my son is dead. My sons aren't coming back. And he's saying, listen, I want to remind you of something. Your sons are going to come back. You're going to have hope. There's, there's a reward for the suffering that you've got right now. And that reward happens at the resurrection. This is the whole point of the gospel. This is why Jesus coming makes good news of tragedy. Because he didn't just come and live. He came and lived and died to pay the price for all of our sin and all of our brokenness. And he came back to life three days later. You know what that tells us? It tells us he put his foot on the neck of death and says, I've got death. I own it. I've got your suffering. And one day I'm going to make it all right. Every loved one who's gone on before you, I'm bringing them back and I'm going to reunite you and it's going to be amazing. 
Everything you suffered for living for me and following for me, I'm going to come back and then I'm going to reward you and make you happy and joyful. Here's the good news of Christmas. It doesn't remove all suffering. It rewards our suffering. It doesn't remove all evil actions, but he comes and he makes it right at the resurrection and he saves us and he cleans us and he will reward us for suffering evil. Listen, that's the good news. That's what Christmas does for us. When we show up at Christmas time, it's not that all suffering stops. It's that Jesus gives us deep hope in the midst of suffering. So today, I feel heavy. If the burden feels like you can't, you can't carry it anymore, if the loss feels too great and doesn't feel like it makes sense, and all this talk about Jesus feels disjointed from your current hardship, Listen, it's not disjointed because the full Christmas story is not that a baby was born. The full Christmas story is that a baby was born that became a man that died on the cross and he came back to life three days later and he gives us hope. Listen, church, I want to I show you this video. Uh, there's a pastor named John Piper. He, he wrote some poem about this passage right here. And as I was getting ready for this, I remembered this thing and I like it not... Uh, he's going to take some artistic license, but I think it really helps solidify what we just looked at in Matthew chapter two, the deep suffering of those families when Herod came through and the hope of the resurrection of Jesus. Would take a few moments to watch this video with us. So quickly do we pass over the Christmas words, Herod slew all the male children, two years old and under. But the poet lingers, weeping, raging, looking at the dark spot in hope that any prick of light might become a portal for the sun. And what he sees, he strains with words to show, pressing us against the perforation of the wall of pain. The innkeeper seeks to reveal the light that shines behind this brutal moment in history and our own path of suffering. Come and see. Jake's wife would have been 58 the day that Jesus passed the gate of Bethlehem and slowly walked towards Jacob's inn. The people talked with friends, and children played along the paths, and Jesus hummed a song and smiled at every child he saw. He paused with one small lass to draw a camel in the dirt, then said, what's this? The girl bent down her head to study what the Lord had made. She smiled, a camel, sir and laid her finger on the bulging back where merchants bind their leather pack. It's got a hump. Indeed it does. And who do you believe it was who made this camel with his hump? Without a thought that this would stump the rabbi guild and be reviled, she said, God did. And Jesus smiled. Good eyes, my child. And would that all Jerusalem within that wall of yonder stone would see the signs of peace. He left the lass 
with lines of simple wonder in her face and slowly went to find the place where he was born. Folks said the inn had never been a place for sin, for Jacob was a holy man, and he and Rachel had a plan to marry, have a child or two, and serve the folks who traveled through, especially the poor, who brought their meal and turtle doves and sought a place to stay near Zion's gate. They'd rise up early, stay up late to help the pilgrims go and come. And when the place was full, to some, especially the poorest, they would say, we're sorry there's no room, but stay now if you like out back. There's lots of hay and we have extra cots that you can use. There'll be no charge. The stable isn't very large, but Noah keeps it safe. He was a wedding gift to Jake because the shepherds knew he loved the dog. There's nothing in the Decalogue, he used to joke, that says a man can't love a dog. The children ran ahead of Jesus as he strode towards Jacob's inn. The stony road that led up to the inn was deep with centuries of wear and steep at one point just before the door. The Lord knocked once then twice before he heard an old man's voice round back it called so Jesus took the track that led around the inn the old man leaned back in his chair and told the dog to never mind and had no one to tend the door my lad for 30 years I'm sorry for the inconvenience to your sore feet the road to Jerusalem is hard ain't it don't mind old Shem, he's harmless, like his dad. Won't bite a Roman soldier in the night. Sit down. Jacob waved the stump of his right arm. We're in a slump right now. We've got lots of time to think and talk. Come, sit, have a drink. From Jacob's well, he laughed. You own the inn? The Lord inquired. On loan, you'd better say. God owns the inn. At that, the Lord knew they were kin and ventured on. Do you recall the tax when Caesar said to all the world that each must be enrolled? Old Jacob winced. Are north winds cold? Are deserts dry? Do fishes swim and ravens fly? I do. A grim and awful year it was for me when God ordained that strange decree. How could I such a time forget? Why do you ask? I have a debt to pay and I must see how much. Why do you say that it was such a grim and awful year? He raised the stump of his right arm. So dazed, young man, I didn't know I'd lost my arm. Do you know what it costs for me to house the Son of God? The old man took his cedar rod and swept it round the place, empty, for 30 years alone, you see? Old Jacob, poor old Jacob, runs it with 
One arm, a dog, no sons. But I had sons once. Joseph was my firstborn. He was small because his mother was so sick. When he turned three, the Lord was good to me and Rachel and our baby Ben was born the very fortnight when the blessed family arrived. And Rachel's gracious heart contrived a way for them to stay there in that very stall. The man was thin and tired. You look a lot like him. But Jesus said, why was it grim? We got a reputation here that night. Nothing at all to fear in that, we thought. It was of God. But in one year, the slaughter squad from Herod came. And where do you suppose they started? Not a clue. We didn't have a clue what they had come to do. No time to pray. No time to run. No time to get poor Joseph off the street and let him say goodbye to Ben or me or Rachel. Only time to see a lifted spear smash through his spine and chest. He stumbled to the sign that welcomed strangers to the place and looked with panic at my face as if to ask what he had done. Young man, you ever lost a son? The tears streamed down the Savior's cheek. He shook his head, but couldn't speak. Before I found the breath to scream, I heard the words, a horrid dream. Kill every child who's two or less. Spare not for aught nor make excess. Let this one be the oldest here. And if you count your own life dear, let none escape. I had no sword, no weapons in my house. But Lord, I had my hands and I would save the son of my right hand. So brave. Rachel was so brave. Her hands were like a thousand iron bands around the boy. She wouldn't let him go. And so her own back met with every thrust and blow. I lost my arm, my wife, my sons, the cost of housing the Messiah here. Why would he simply disappear? and never come to help. They sat in silence and Jacob wondered at the stranger's tears. I am the boy. I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life. And then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why the one should live, another die. God's ways are high and you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared the night you made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks, they will crucify my flesh. But mark this, Jacob, 
I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head of him who has the power of death. And I will raise with life and breath your wife and Ben and Joseph too and give them Jacob back to you with everything the world can store and you will reign forevermore. So does tragedy and Christmas go together? The answer is yes. That the truth of Christmas is that there will be a resurrection one day. That he will make everything new. That everything you've lost, suffered, everyone you miss, that the power of the gospel is that there is a resurrection Church, I pray that you celebrate Christmas this year with a joy that cannot be taken away by suffering, but only deepens because there's a resurrection coming. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Right there in your seat, um, I want to walk you through some time of responding. First of all, respond by worshiping a God that would come to give such an amazing gift of not only new life and a new heart and forgiveness, but resurrection. If you're heavy today, or you're mourning, or you're grieving, or you're suffering, faith, faith that the resurrection will be worth it and the reward will be great. For some of you, this talk of resurrection is new. So let me tell you the good news. Not everyone gets resurrection to to new life. The, The way we get resurrection is that Jesus came to die on that cross he paid him took all of our debt and our penalty he took all of the brokenness and the evil even of people like Herod killing two-year-old kids he took all of that and offers all of us forgiveness and a new life and eternal life with him forever after the resurrection and that's all a gift that all we have to do is trust him and ask him to actually save us if you'll do that, if you'll trust him, not, not, not if you'll work hard, not if you'll clean yourself up, but if you'll trust him, he will give you eternal life and the resurrection. If you've never trusted him, if, if Christianity has been about religion or performance or anything else, listen, I want to call you today right there in your seat to respond by just asking him to save you. Heavenly Father, God, you you see us all. You see 
for those of us who are weary or tired or suffering. God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts today that you will come back and it will be amazing. That you will make it all right. God, some of us here, we're we're not just struggling with suffering. We're having a great time. God, I'm praying that we would look to the depths of the joys of Christmas, that Jesus came to die and come back to life, not just a baby, but a savior. God, I'm praying you would firm us and strengthen us and make us able to endure suffering when it comes. So prepare us for suffering. And God, I pray you'd make us deeply happy, deeply happy people because of your good news. And I pray that all in Jesus' name, amen.